Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, diving, driving gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 152, and we thank you for listening. This week, our intrepid Jason is on vacation, so we have our good pal Cole Pennington reprising his guest role from episode 107, but he's been promoted to guest host. How you doing, Cole? I, I'm just relishing the opportunity to have been promoted to guest host, to be honest. Our first guest host. <laughs> yeah, this is great. It's awesome. I'm, yeah. So because of that, I'm doing quite well. There you go. Yeah, this is great. No, uh, we're, we're pumped. Uh, you know, now that we're on weekly episodes, obviously, I'd like Jason to be able to take vacation. And, and with the workload that that's pretty common now between Hodinkee and TGN and the rest, it's it's hard to try and do more than one episode a week. Like going to one episode a week really takes a whole day of my four to seven day work week. Trying to stack them up to put them out later on makes it more difficult. Uh, so this way, uh, Jason was able to take his vacation and he's down there. I checked in with him today. He's having a great time. We're, we're absolutely thrilled to have you on. You know, 107 is a really popular episode. People really, really kind of dig what you what you brought to the to the show. And and I think it's going to be a fun one because you've had, um, unlike me, you know, I've, I've been largely in my living room, my bedroom or my office for the last uh, nearly two years. You've been moving around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely have been trying to. And, and I will say Jason deserves a, a vacation. So oh, absolutely. It's an honor to be able to, to do that. And, Dude wrote and a you book. do too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. I haven't done anything. I, I, I don't Yeah, I don't need a vacation. Mentally, I might need one. I definitely have done nothing to deserve one. So for many of you, Cole won't need an intro, but he's a fellow watch writer and editor at Hodinkee, a diver, a driver, a fisherman, and a very well-seasoned traveler. You can find him online on Instagram at Cole underscore Pennington. It's an absolute treat to have Cole as a friend, and I'm really pumped for what will almost certainly be, you know, a rambling, tangent-filled sort of episode. (laughs) If you're new to the show or you haven't been listening to the last uh, few episodes, we've transitioned the entire show notes platform to Substack at uh, notes.thegraynado.com. So now you can subscribe to the Substack, which means every Thursday morning you get an email that has all the show notes, the photos we talk about, an embedded player for the show, and access to all the comments, which is uh, something that's really taken off. There's more people commenting than I think Jason and I expected. And the comments have been great. People are on there sharing everything from interesting sea animals to their favorite hats to uh, pens, flashlights, watches, cars, this or that. It's been fantastic. I really enjoy it. So if you want to get in on that chit chat, or if you really just want the easiest way to get the the big picture of the show, the notes, the images, the rest of it, uh, notes.thegraynado.com, uh, subscribe, you know, sign up for a Substack account so you can leave a comment. It doesn't cost anything uh, to do that. And uh, but we, we would love to see uh, your name and, and your thoughts in there if you have uh, if you have uh, the kind of inclination to do so. Uh, next up, uh, our, our buddies at Tactile Turn, they make these really high end pens uh, that Jason and I got each got a kind of a sample of a couple months ago. They re- reached out and just said they saw a lot of kind of engagement on the link that we had put in the show notes and they offered up a, a promo code for TGN listeners. Those who have been listening to TGN for a while know that we don't really do promo codes. I'm not super sure how I feel about them, but um, it's not an affiliate link. I don't make any money if you use it or you don't use it. Heaton doesn't make any money for like we don't we don't get any money back, but it's 10 percent off. So you can use the code TGN at a tactile turn. Uh, the pen is incredible. I'm writing more handwritten notes than I have in a long, long time. Uh, I really, really like using it. I, I was able to actually just take the uh, the cartridge from like a Muji gel pen, which is my favorite kind of in- cheap pen. And trim it down and fit it into the body, and it's it's perfect. So I really like that. Uh, so yeah, check out more from them at uh, tactileturn.com. The code is TGN for ten percent off. It's a good deal uh, to get a few bucks off any of their kind of uh, non limited edition pens. 
And yeah, uh, also, you know, let us know at the notes.graynoto.com if you like discount codes, if it's something I should be asking brands for. If you're keen, we can try and do more. If it's something you think is annoying, I, I like to know that too. But my guess is nobody's really going to be too upset about, you know, 10 to $15 off of a, a great pen uh, if you're, if you're in the, still in the mode of writing things by hand. Yeah, I think, I think that's everything for kind of the, the show, top of the show news. Uh, where, whereabouts are you uh, calling in from? I'm uh, I'm calling in from Salt Lake City, Utah, just southwest. Uh, SLC, yeah, there you go. SLC, baby. How long you been out there? A little while. Yeah, a little while. You dig um, it? I love it. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, who knows how it's going to go in the winter? I'm not a winter guy, <laughs> <laughs> but but, um, but yeah, I love it so far. Summer out in the desert is great. Uh, it's kind of an outdoor paradise. I mean, you 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 know that intuitively mm-hmm. that this is like the land of outdoor sports, but you come out here and it, it's actually true. Everything they say is true. Everyone's got an overland rig. Everyone's got multiple bicycles. Uh, it's 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 awesome. Yeah. So are you, are you in the you're feeling the deep need for a dirt bike or a, a clapped out rally car or something like that? So yeah, kind of like a and I have been thinking about this like a desert build. So the overlanding and, and the way I've done the Pajero, which you talked about last episode, it's more mud oriented. But now I'm thinking, all right, so what about the desert? And I'm even thinking about something new. So like, so you went one route, you went the Jeep route, right? I did. Yeah. The other route to go would be the Tacoma forerunner route. These are kind of, that's the the fork in the road. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking Tacoma. I'm doing in the research phase, which is usually the most fun phase of the whole thing, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's the lowest stakes phase. Essentially, (laughs) eventually you have to actually buy something. And, uh, and, you know, it is something that comes up with some frequency, both on this show and, and with other with other kind of discussions like the Jeep isn't is, is like it's a pretty flawed vehicle in many ways. And I th- and this is why, like, I love it. But I also wouldn't stand here and recommend that other people necessarily go buy a 10 year old JK. <laughs> you know, I, I want I wanted an SUV with a stick. So that immediately drops your options way down. And I didn't really want a right hand drive as my daily. So then there's a few more options gone, like like the Pajero. Yeah. And and I I kind of didn't really want to get into the world of a really well-used German like an X5. Mm, ooh, no. Way. Which like a, a clean X5 with a stick is a lovely thing. As is the X3, the 3 liter X3. Yeah. But the amount of money I want to spend, I want to buy cash for I want to spend cash for a car, I don't want to owe on it or anything like exactly. that. Exactly. And uh and and I also don't drive very much, so I don't really have the need to go spend a big wad of cash. I just want to spend the right amount and get a vehicle. And it had to be a stick. So that kind of backed me into the into it the does. Wrangler territory pretty quickly. And the other side of it is I kind of wanted it to be like a bit, like a bit of a joke for my kids. Like I wanted them to to like feel something for a car rather than just have another appliance. Like I looked at Toyota Highlanders. I think that probably would have been the smarter decision. <laughs> All things considered, right? A much more, you know, kind of yeah, agreeable vehicle on the road, on the highway, that sort of thing. But like, I'm really happy with the Jeep, but not so much for all of its Jeepness. More that it it's a manual, and and it my kids think it's kind of it's funny. Fun. Yeah. I uh, I'll tell you a quick story about the uh, the right hand drive situation. So sure, sure. I was uh, doing this this road trip, driving out here, and I'm also driving another right hand drive car, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't know this, but a lot of the middle of the country, like. Ohio, Illinois, this kind of area, there's just crazy tolls, a ton of tolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need the little grabber. Well, so <laughs> I didn't have the grabber and I kind of lean over. So obviously you pop it into neutral, lean over to take the ticket, press the button and take the ticket. But my left uh, thigh moved 
the and keep in mind my foot's off the clutch obviously but i'm leaning across the car left thigh knocks it into first which if you think about like leaning over and grabbing something you're you're moving in that direction yeah pops it into first which you can do i mean with enough force you can pop a car into gear oh no problem. yeah absolutely yeah you gotta, and then, yeah muscle it but exactly but i lurch forward and almost crash through the uh the little gate that goes up and down before stalling out. <laughs> I think I think they would have been they would not have been thrilled about that. I, I'm glad it was no. an almost. Yeah, it was an almost. It literally just like if if these things didn't have like stall mechanisms built in, like if it did mm-hmm. just go into first and stay there, I would have been clean through the gate, and that would have been damage to public property, which that would be a hard one to get out of, you know. Yeah, I think maybe they would have given you some leeway when you're like, I was literally reaching for the toll and, and put it into gear. <laughs> They're still going to want you to pay for that little bullard arm or whatever, but uh, maybe they maybe they wouldn't drag you away to uh, you know uh, Illinois State Prison of some sort. <laughs> but yeah, that's so, so talking about the right hand drive thing. Yeah, I, I'm with you that you don't want to do that on a daily. Like, and yeah, I'm learning I, that the hard. I, I see the appeal of uh, of having it as the as your B or your C option as the the yeah. fun option. And and so you took the R33 out there. That's right. Yeah, R33 GTS 25T. So nice. kind of your yeah, yeah. mid-range skyline. And uh, and yeah, that's the car that would have gone through the toll booth. So good thing it didn't for, for the car's sake too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, well, especially because things like windshields and stuff for those cars aren't exactly uh, easy to garden with. variety, right? The, the yeah. seals especially, I know, on, yep. on R34s, R32s, and 33s and stuff can be pretty tough. Um, did you catch all of the R33s at, uh, at uh, Festival of Speed? I saw some. So I... I, I've been seeing it through social, like parsed bits. I didn't sit down and watch it yet, but I know that there was definitely some some action that I got to check out. Yeah, they did. Um, So they did a, a bunch of drift runs, which is something they've they've added to FOS yeah. in the last couple of years. And one of them was the the Advan HKS R33, um, which is like one of the coolest cars ever made. The green headlights, like a yep. pure peak. Like it's so it, it's almost not even fair to call HKS just like a tuner car because right. they were doing it at a level that like three other brands only their contemporaries were touching uh i'll drop it in the show notes of course but the um the festival of speed which is uh for those listening who aren't aren't real car fans um is uh you know part of the goodwood festival series of of the year and and it's essentially a hill climb and now it's several days it's been growing i think or at least from its youtube presence it's been growing and basically people run it's a hill climb so there's one course there's a couple spectating points and by I mean a lot of people can sit and watch it, and it's a huge event, huge social event in the in the car calendar. Um, and people rip up the hill to get to the top. And some are timed, and some are some are exhibitions, some are drift laps. The drift laps or not laps, the drift runs have barrels that they have to kind of go around and between, and then they have a wall ride section, and then they're kind of scored based on that. And Pastrana had the new twenty twenty Subi there for for the the Jim car. Uh, which is a, a bonkers thing. Uh, there was a couple insane S14s. I think literally just as we're recording this, the uh, full-timed shootout is premiering on YouTube. So I was going to have that in my final notes, but I haven't been able to actually watch it. I know it's worth watching, so I will put it in the notes, but I don't want to count it as my final notes. It's a bonus. You know? Yeah, it's a little bonus, but there's some really, really fun stuff to see this year. And, the, you know, some insane cars, you know, the the GT3X 720S, the McLaren, put down an absolutely ridiculous time for a, a petrol powered car. Uh, some really, really fun stuff this year. And, and the thing before we move on, the coolest thing about that is that the, the hill climb, the course is actually Lord March's driveway. 
So he's the Duke of Richmond. That's literally his driveway. So he's easy going on that every day, right? Yeah. So and it's, I, mean, it's crazy I, I just think the, the thing that always strikes me about that being someone's driveway is think about this like, you know, two weeks from now, all, all of the, the hay bales will be gone and the stands will be gone and the presenter's booths will be gone. And he'll just be like driving his uh, Land Rover or whatever back up to the house and the, his whole driveway will just be covered Skid in marks. tire marks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so yeah. funny. And, the, the, you know, there's a couple pretty good offs, a um, uh, BMW 8 series of some sort went off at a lot of speed. So there's going to be a good divot in his grass as well from that car hitting, hitting the bales at 80 miles an hour or whatever it was. Nice little reminder of the past. Yeah, for sure. No, it's it's super like you've been to some of the good the Goodwood stuff, right? Yeah, I've been to both Festival Speed and Revival. Fantastic. Twice. Yeah, both both are dreams for me. What what are they like in person, especially Festival? Uh, Festival Speed so very, very different. Festival Speed is obviously it's uh, here's the thing. When you're walking around, you see a lot of people from the manufacturers and the teams that are making sure. Runs so that when I was there, it was like a Volkswagen electric car, an IDR or something like that. That set the and record. It yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it set the record. So that yep. was the the last time I went, and uh, you know, a lot of people from Volkswagen. And there's not a lot of uh, come. It, yeah, it, it's cool, but it's cool if you go with someone or you're there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. as a spectator, it's like you are there. The the revival, though, on the other hand, is totally. The vibe is more like a little bit more of a party, right? Yeah, go, yeah, exactly. And that classic, like English polished, uh, it's a party, but it's, it's refined, right? right. So yeah, you're yeah, drinking yeah. champagne, eating nice food and yeah, it's great. I hope so this year obviously wasn't in the cards, right? But maybe revival is, we'll see. And, uh, who knows? Maybe I'll see you there. Yeah, I, w- I would love to go. You know, I, I, I put a, a fairly serious look into seeing if I could make car week happen. Because I just feel like even if I had to had to do the like sleep on a friend's floor or or whatever, even if I could just get one or two days, it might be good for my soul to be around like a proper so. car event again. Because I, uh, I miss it, I miss it a lot, and um, it doesn't look like it's going to work out this year. But I'll, I'll definitely have to find something you know in the calendar uh, for the future. Because I, yeah, I, I miss this stuff. I miss taking the pictures. I miss seeing the cars. It's interesting to see all of the car events like come back in some version. Mm. And just how excited that community is for these things. Yeah. Because there's, you know this, and, and it, it can be hard to kind of explain this to people at Hodinkee. For those of you who don't know Cole, he's also an editor at Hodinkee, my colleague at Hodinkee, uh, but also a pretty, just loves all cars. Like me, you know, it's I'm true. not a brand guy. I'm not even yep. a, an SUV guy or a car guy. I just like anything, especially if it's cool. You know, oh, you posted that. Uh, so you found an SRT4. I was so happy for you. <laughs> oh, my God. It's one of my favorites. I mean, what a cool car. <laughs> we're the same age. And that was kind mm-hmm. of like the the darling of high school, right? Yeah. It kind of was like that era. And I think that era, these are future collectibles. I'm not going to say to go out and buy one because I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't. But but I think they are. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many other, like there's a handful of other countries that, that we're doing that sort of car before and have can continue to do it. And occasionally America just kind of, it's like a stone skipping on the water. They go, we mm-hmm. need a fast little sedan. So the SRT four, and then there's nothing Focus for a little ST. while year. And then yeah. another one, and then there's nothing for a decade. And then there's another one. It's true. And yeah, that little mini Viper sort of scene is, is such a funny thing. If you guys, again, I'll put it in the show notes. It's a essentially the hot, the hottest raciest uh, Dodge neon. <laughs> But the thing is, it's not a neon. So You're doing a disservice calling it a neon, but, but looks, that's fine. It looks just like a neon. It, it is does. A, visually, I mean, it's a neon with like a, a you know a copperhead inspired front grille. That's true, uh, and and Dodge like a McDonald's arch wing yeah. in the back. Yeah, super yeah. fun car, hilarious. The the car scene is a lot more fun than the watch show scene. 
Agreed. Like watch shows are still more of a trade event, and I'm sure if we if if we were deep enough in the car scene to go to the Frankfurt Auto Show and the the G, like you might those are probably more analogous to a, a Basel World or or even a Watches and Wonders. But there's nothing really in the watch world that's like um, Concorso or Car Week or Amelia or or any of these. You know, it's it's just kind of a different scene. It's just the car world is a little bit more about having a good time while standing near a car. Yeah, and and uh, talking. I think they do I want to well. see the the Radwood of the watch world would be yeah, cool. for sure. Like if that could happen, that would, and hey, maybe you and I put it on. Have you Let's been to one of their it. events? I did. Yeah, I went to Radwood in Philly. In uh, Philly, a few okay, years that ago. makes sense. Yeah, I I I really like their podcast, The Driving Well Awesome. Yeah, you know, I think those are they're they're solid guys. They they have great taste in cars, uh, interesting and 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 otherwise, they just kind of noteworthy stuff and. Yeah, I I, uh, I like that a lot. I'd I'd love to see a, a Radwood in Toronto or, or or something that I could I could dip over to and check out. I don't I don't have a car to to put in, but I definitely go hang out. And and I, I think they must have done one just recently because I saw a bunch of it on um on Camisa's uh, Instagram. It's coming back, man. Everything's coming back. Cars, watches. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, well, I, maybe I, I, not for you, but down here it is. <laughs> not for me just yet, and I, I'm I'm largely okay with that. I don't need all of my work to come back in the summer. Yeah, yeah. Fair, talk to fair. talk to me when I, when I don't want to be at my cottage, and then yeah, we can we can start putting me on a plane to go places. But right now, I'm pretty happy to spend my weekends jumping off a dock. So you're out in Utah now. What what are you doing to kind of fill the days? What what's the last couple of weeks been like for you? So there's obviously work every day, but what what do I yeah, do yeah. to relax and chill? I think uh, been getting back into BMX riding in the form of a pump track. So there's a pump track out here. You you know what those are? Uh, only loosely. Yeah. They're like a, like a, a dirt kind of jump flow track sort of thing. Well, these are actually, so these are paved. So there's a company out of Switzerland called Velo Solutions and a pump track is an undulating mm-hmm. track where you're, you're literally pumping. It's, it's very different than a skate park. The idea is not necessarily to do crazy tricks or anything like that. It's really to maintain speed around a track and maybe it's like a flow, like a flow. Exactly. Thing. It's a flow, a thing. little bit more like single track sort of work. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, Shif- shifting okay. weight around and so forth. And, I don't think I've seen it paved necessarily, but I've seen some of this in the Whistler area. Exactly. Um, that, this is yeah, kind yeah. of the vibe. Very much Whistler kind of uh, the, those little, I think they call them North Shore skinnies and all these type of things. So imagine that, but paved. I've been mm-hmm. doing, really getting into that hardcore and, you know, researching how to build up a bike for this, like taking off the stock tires and putting on what would be the equivalent of slicks in the car world, just so you get nice and stuck in when you're going around the berms and, and, you're glued to the the, right. the the track. So been doing that, been riding this uh GTA GT La Bamba, which is a gift, which I'm loving. Okay. It's it's a sick bike. And it really goes back. This is the cool what, thing. What brand is that? I'll put it in the show notes. It's a it's a GT. You know, the classic. Brand, the GT. brand is GT? Yeah, yeah. That's like Okay. I don't know that much about bikes. I don't know GT. They were like the king of the nineties BMX bikes. They owned okay. uh they owned another brand called Dino, but GT was kind of their premium oh, I remember, BMX brand. I remember Dino. Yeah, the Dino Comp was the big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, so what, what was the done, one that was just a guy's name? That was Dave Mira. No, well, I remember Dave Mira, but there was another bike that every that a couple that was like it was the thing to have in grade ten, uh, grade eight to grade ten. What was Starting that? with the B, Bobby. Oh. Or, I know what you're talking about. Oh my God. How can I not? <laughs> they I'm, were like, they're like, there are, it was a flex. If you yeah. got one of these. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Somebody listening is just screaming at their phone yeah. currently. If, if you can. Um, but I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Scream louder. We might hear you. Um, yeah. I remember, I remember these things being like, they, they were the equivalent of having like a Ferrari when you were 13 years old. Yeah. Right. Like if, if whether, whether it was something your family made possible or maybe had some birthday money or whatever. And, 
And you, that was a huge thing. Like, you know, yeah, I, I, where I grew up, you, if you weren't playing hockey, you were at least standing near uh, a half pipe somebody built in their backyard. That's same, same thing for me when I was growing up. And, <laughs> and here's the thing, and I will recommend it to you too. It feels great to return to that. And there is a more nuanced, mature form of that in, in what they call bombers or dirt jumping bikes. Like it's, so it's 26 inch mountain bike wheels on a BMX geometry frame. And and you can be an old dude like me and, and, and ride and it's fun. And, uh, that's really what I've been doing. So that's what I've been filling my days with quite a bit. And then, um, one, one work assignment has me stoked. Uh, okay. Let's hear about it. So work for Hodinkee. Work for Hodinkee. Yeah. Okay. All right. So does the name Brian Shule mean anything to you? It certainly does for me. Yeah. The, uh, the, one of the more kind of public facing SR 71 pilots. Yeah. He is the guy. I mean, he's, he's kind of, so I'm writing a story about him now. I spent like an hour on the phone with him yesterday or on a zoom, but fantastic. He, one of his things is he kind of laments that he's become the speed check guy or the sled driver guy. Cause he's a, sure. a nature photographer. He's flown. T- he was actually, he's an honorary Thunderbird. So no way. One of the crazy tidbits was, you we were kind of sharing, you know, notes, and I said, "Hey, I wrote this pretty cool piece about uh, how the th- I was trying to trying to highlight the crossover between aviation and horology." And I was like, "Oh, uh, there's a, a piece I did, I don't know, half a year ago or something about using a marathon stopwatch in the the cockpit of a Thunderbird, uh, of an F-16. That's part of Thunderbirds, and this is how they do their solo runs." And he goes. Boy, you know I'm an honorary Thunderbird, Thunderbird. <laughs> and I'm like, and he's like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know the stopwatch. I've done it. I'm like, oh my god, I should have known, you know. So, yeah, I, I talked to Brian Schul, and this is kind of like a, a meet your heroes scenario. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, for both of us, I would say he's probably a hero, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, no question. And yeah, I got to ask him, and 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 I, you know, I asked your questions, which were great too. So before we kind of got together and said, well, what should we talk to this guy about? So. The story will come out once I transcribe it, go write the whole thing. But just talking to someone in, in such a casual and this happens every now with with our job in the watch world, like and, and TGN, too. I mean, TGN guests have been, you know, you've got some high profile people on here. But yeah, we've gotten lucky a couple of times. Yeah, Cole Pennington's been on. Nah, nah, nah. But, <laughs> but um, just being able to talk casually. And once you once you kind of pass the, the fanboy I don't know, first 30 seconds, because we've done this a bunch, right? So Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you get into the meat and potatoes of conversation, you even have more respect. That's how it turned out for me. And, and I actually, the opposite has been true more than I like to admit, unfortunately. But in this instance, the idea of like, you know, talking to your hero, yeah, he's better than you even think. Like he's he's more on your level, like he'll level with you, put it this way. He'll pull you up to his level and talk to you like, you know, like you're one of the boys and that's what happened. And really, really enjoyed that. He had some incredible insight. And he also, he said some things which have, uh, have not, he hasn't said before and, and kind of how he came. So he hasn't revealed the origin of the speed check story. And I think if I'm recalling correctly, he actually said that to highlight what makes the job fun to like a fifth grader or something. He was talking to kids and saying, this is a serious job. You know, you're, you're knocking on death's knocking on your door every day. And then one of the kids said, well, do you ever have fun with it? And he stopped for a second and said, you know, there was one time where I had a lot of fun. And that is what actually, that was the birth of the speed check story that, that obviously we can link up in the show notes too. Right. So Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty famous story. And and my guess is, you know, it's definitely one that like, 
I've talked about the SR seventy one and my interest in the in the Oxcart program and the rest of it on on the show before. And then people always send me links to yeah. the stories. Yeah, it's, it's, it is the famous one. There's of course there's the other one which I believe was at a a, a, a military airport in the UK where a pilot attempted to do a low uh, a low flyby for a school. Yeah, and just and I believe did something like came out of a pocket of air and dropped quite significantly lower than he expected and ended up, I think, ruining some windows or something like that. I remember that. In, yeah. in, in a 71. I, I don't, I think that's a story I only came across once and I'm not sure that it was necessarily verified. But yeah, there's a couple kind of famous stories. Obviously, the the ejection seat story is a pretty crazy one. So there, there are some some stuff in the, in the back, background of that. Yeah, I, that one, you know, you, you wrote me and said that you were speaking with him and, and to ask for questions. And I said, well, you, let me think about it. Um, and I just kind of mulled on it for a while. And then you reminded me, you know, yesterday or the day before to uh, to actually get you those questions. But yeah, it's it's a tough one. Um, every time that I've come across one of those planes, the ones that are on display, mm-hmm. there's always somebody within 20 feet of one of the landing gears that knows everything about the plane. And you think you'd know a lot about the plane or I think I think I might know a lot about the plane. And you meet somebody. I remember I went to the... Um, the uh, flight museum of flight uh, just outside of Seattle. Mm, yep. Uh, that's attached to, I believe, the Boeing. Right. It is uh, headquarters there, and um, and they have an MD twenty one, which is a, an SR seventy one that has a drone mm. um, that could be fired. You know, you couldn't put manned aircraft over Russia, so they would fly along the border and then fire the drone in, and it would do a big lap and take a bunch of pictures and then crash outside of Russia, and they would go recover it. And, uh, and so these, these MD-21s is a pretty cool thing. And the docent at this museum, I could have, I could have, if I could have just handed him money, he would have just kept <laughs> I mean, like, no, no, ignore those people. It's just, I'm, 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 ba- I'm paying for your day here. Um, he was great. Uh, everything about that's great. And any chance to see or hear about those planes always, it, it just makes me feel like a five-year-old going to my first air show again. It's just, it's a world of complete wonder and uh and, and, and fascination it's great stuff same I, I get the same visceral reaction every time i see one i actually i came across one on accident driving out here i stopped at the uh, strategic air command museum in nebraska and i didn't know okay. I, I didn't even know this existed i just saw you know down here we have these brown and white signs for public museums or whatever saw one that said uh sac museum or sac air museum or something and i was like well that sounds cool i'm a little ahead of schedule uh, let me pull in, walked in and there you go. SR 71 hanging right in the, the main part of the museum. And I was like, oof, man. So yeah, it's been a, been, I've been up to some, some nice things lately. How about yourself? Yeah. Just, you know, like borderline nothing, especially <laughs> now that I'm on weekly episodes. Uh, you know, it just, I, I don't have, I don't have that much to talk about one day to another. You know, the the workload during the pandemic has been higher than it was previously. You know, there's no travel, so now there's more time to do just more writing and more stuff like that. So I find that takes up a lot of time. And then the rest is like stuff that I don't think really makes for like a really interesting story. You know, I'm trying to teach my kids how to snorkel. That's kind of fun. That's but fun, like, actually. That's a nice story because... But like a, a lot, that's all that all that's all that has to be said. That was the whole story was four seconds, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not I'm not leading quite as adventurous a life. But, you know, uh, spending every weekend up at the cottage, uh, tent tent camping and cooking on the fire and swimming and rode some quads this week, this past weekend, shot a few guns. Uh, it was all, all kind of fun. You know, yeah, it's been it's been so far a fine summer. Uh, just just trying to make sure that, you know, keep the pace up and, and make sure that find some time for recreation here or there. Yeah, that that's funny you mentioned that. I, I The other day I did the math like, OK, so obviously for, for me, I 
did have to go into an office, right? And then pandemic changed that. And I did the math on how much time you save commuting. And it's in the hundreds of hours, obviously. And then you think like you might get that back to do something productive on a personal level. But the answer is no, not really. But uh, that's fine with me just not having to do it, right? Now you're not forced to go somewhere. But and And you end up using this time to actually do more work, which is in turn, you become more productive. To your employer, yeah, yeah. which should be a, a good thing. It's a win for them, right? But it is interesting you say that that the workload increased during the pandemic because I I feel the same way. Yeah, I think I think I kind of expected it to almost mellow out. Like there'd be less to talk about because people were kind of closing watch factories and, mm-hmm. and pausing production and things like that. But it's just not the way it went. I mean, I mean, I think everybody went into like a bit of a panic mode a year and a half ago and thought like, well. It, you know, there's just so much uncertainty that the result was like, let's just solidify an editorial calendar and crank out a bunch of work. And, you know, we were doing weekly TGNs at that point because of the the increased amount of time that we had. I, you know, if you're not if you're not on two to five flights a week. Yeah, that that's a lot of time saved as well. You know, I'm not spending hours in an Uber. Right. right, I'm, right. Like, let, let alone the time I might spend in airport lounges or the otherwise. So, the, you know, you, there's still like there's still hobby and fascination, but it, it is like much more enclosed. I've I've gotten as I've talked a little bit about, I've, I've gotten more and more into like hi-fi audio and and trying to find things that interest me where I know nothing, so I get to start at the bottom. That's what Heaton calls being a civilian. Being I like that, yeah. And like at a certain point, you know so much that like some of the fun could be drawn out of it, or it's work, right? And that's it's not that work isn't fun, but it's not the same kind of fun as just doing something because that's what your brain wants to do for the next hour. I want to read about speakers or I want to learn about, uh, you know, the other night I went on a real tear on E85 Z4s, Ooh, uh, interesting. you know, first first gen Z4s, which yeah. I think are undervalued right now. And especially because a lot of the attention is on the M mm-hmm. Z4s, the 06 to 08s. Yeah. The three liters, which are perfectly fast enough for North American road, especially the ones around Toronto. And my guess is just think about what tires have done since 2006 to now. Tons. And and so a three liter with a new set of PS4 S's is going to be, it's going to be great. And there's not like there, so many cars have exploded in value. So this is, I, I follow more of those rabbit holes now than maybe I used to. I got very deep into Mario golf very briefly. You mean the came out video a game? while ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there's a new a new watch out that you should check out. It's called the Mario Connected Watch, and there's an article on it uh, that I wrote. You're not allowed to talk about that watch on my show. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't get it. But also that you know, Tag Tag is a brand that has to address almost the whole world of people who might like a watch. Yeah, and so very few of their products feel like they're meant for me. All right, so I won't talk about that. But what I will talk about is I'm going to issue you a little wrist check right here. Oh yeah, so oh it's oh you're 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 running the show. Okay, this is fine. I'm I can, running the I can show. Relax. This is fun. <laughs> this is fun. You guys could tell there's not a lot of format here. We just have a list of things that we might talk about. Uh, so yeah, let's. I, I that is a good point. I think it's you know we're 30 plus minutes in, so it is probably time to get to the main topic. And I want to hear about dive trips and uh, and Southeast Asia and 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 some great stuff. But yeah, let's do let's do a wrist check. Uh, Heaton usually goes first, so I guess I'll take my turn to go first. Uh, I'm wearing the Aquastar Deep Star. Um, I saw uh, Jason was kind of, he posted an Instagram photo of what, some of the things he was taking on his vacation. It included his Deep Star. I'm like, oh, I'll go, I'll go along. And uh, and it, it is, a you know, it's it's just a supremely handy watch. Mm. A little on the big side, I've been wearing smaller stuff lately. And so the 41 millimeter 
somehow manages to feel big. That used to be a small watch in my world. Yeah, totally. On my wrist. But it's, it, but it's big in a way that I find quite pleasing. Uh, it's like it has a nice chunkiness to it. And uh, I do really enjoy the chronograph and the water resistance. I've got it on a green NATO. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this watch. I think it, it's it's just the right mix of like the heritage of that Deep Star design along with, um, you know, it is a little bit bigger and it's a little bit shinier being a brand new watch versus a lot of the vintage ones that you see now, which are pretty, the polish has been right. worn down by time. Yeah. Uh, but I like it a lot, you know, on, on, it works on a bunch of different straps. I like it a, quite a bit on a mesh if you want the extra weight. Um, but yeah, but been wearing that uh, for probably the last three or four days at least, or may, maybe through last weekend as well. Yeah, that's a that's a cool watch. I have yet to see one in person, unfortunately. And and I, I keep hearing it's a bit of a thick boy, but I kind of like yeah, that. It's like, I, I think I would say that the, the easiest way is on my wrist, it wears almost identical to a um, uh, 41 millimeter Black Bay. Oh, okay. Well, that's... That's an easy one to handle, and so I'm. I'm so it's, it's may, maybe it's a millimeter thicker, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, but it in especially because of that skin diver case, you know, with the short lugs, right? It makes the most of that additional size. Um, it would be too much watch on a bracelet for me, but on a thinner mesh, a NATO, a leather, it's all been great. It's super. It's really, really not this time of year for me, but uh, in in less sweaty months, uh, you know, just a Horween, you know, shell cordovan strap is perfect. I dig your stuff nicely. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and how about you? I see uh, you've got you've got uh, some. You wrote about uh, a, a great story about uh, last year. Yeah, so that's why I chose this watch because last time we talked, it was kind of running up to uh, that 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 was that was literally it. So it's the Marathon Arctic MSR, the thirty six millimeter version, and yeah, I wore it because that's the watch that kind of kicked off this whole like, all right, let's let's do something with this time. Let's kind of. Uh, you know, make work with what we've got, I guess you would say. And, um, I think that'll kind of lead us into, if we want to talk a little bit about some interesting things. Yeah, for sure. In the show notes, you can check out the story that Cole wrote last year about the marathon Arctic MSAR in 36 minutes. So that's at the white dial. I think it's their sweetest watch. Me too. It's the in their perfect lineup. Size. Also a little bit of a thick guy for 36. But not in any way that's not wearable. You know, so much of the marathon, like the whole thing that they do, it's it's going to be if if they make a watch that feels thick, it's thick for a reason. And that you know, you get that bezel that anything can grab onto. Exactly. You can have wet hands. You can have it can be covered in mud. You can oil. be wearing gloves like oil. Yeah, no, it's a perfect bezel. So yeah, I think I think that is a good patch over. Um, do you want to start with some of the dive trips? Yeah. So that's one of the things. So like BMX. Uh, biking that I've gotten into recently. I used to dive all the time back when I was living abroad in an area that mm-hmm. was friendly towards diving and, uh, and Same. even, even beyond. Yeah, exactly. And I know you, we've talked about this and then yeah. obviously as you get, you know, sucked into the black hole, that's New York and then all this stuff, like you, you lose touch with what you're about. And, uh, that happened, stopped diving for a little while. Uh, and over the pandemic, I got back into it. So I think my, my buddies and I, we have like an annual trip or just, we, we try and meet somewhere. So the first one of that, I, it's always been on my list to dive the kelp forests, which I know you actually have experience with a a few hundred miles or maybe over a thousand miles North of where I went. Um, I went out to the channel islands and this was, this was a thing. It was like a bucket list thing. One of those, I don't know, IMAX movies when you're a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. cruising through the kelp forests. And I, I thought, you know, I love forests on land. I love diving. So let's kind of see what this is about. And yeah, we went out and we did a, 
did a trip near the Channel Islands and saw, you know, a bunch of calico bass, Garibaldi, all these fish that I had never seen before. Um, and yeah, it was as magical as I would think. It, a lot colder. I mean, I knew that about the Pacific, of course. But the, the actual diving, it's not your uh, Farmer John wetsuit. Let's go see some colorful things. And Were you in a seven mil? I think I was actually in a three and a half, believe it or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's going to be on the chilly side. Yeah, it for was. Sure. It was on the chilly side, but it was. It's a nice. How long? What's what sort of length for the dives? Uh, thirty to forty minutes. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So you just come out cold, not yeah. frozen. And I think we did. We did a day trip. So we left from Santa Barbara. I think is the the, the town we left from. Steamed out to the Channel Islands, and we did two two dives there. So, but that was enough for me. Like that, it, it had been like I said, a bucketless thing. So, really, really any, nice. Any to baby see. great whites? I wish. So that's that's the thing. That's their that's their realm. I, I believe know. these days, right? It really that's is the right temperature point. Yeah. And I, I heard the other day that there was kind of a massive shark attack right around there. Which you know, oh really? Yeah, and, and that is rare. But I did see that, and I was kind of a, you know keeping an eye out for for all of these. Pacific megafauna. Like I would have loved to see more seals, sea lions, things like that out mm-hmm. in the kelp forest. But yeah, it, I really didn't see a lot of that. You know, the takeaway was that fishing this would be very technical, but would yield some great catches because there's just so much down there. It's it's so dense, right? Well, the cold water. Yeah. Yeah. Cold water. And also they have structure. They have these kelp plants, right? And mm-hmm. And one of the coolest things was Garibaldi, these bright orange fish all around. Yeah, they're fun, aren't they? Yeah, against these muted tones. Like uh, a lot of the growth like is, you know, either this kind of like maroon or the greens of the kelp. It's just a very different environment. So that that's a good question for you. Like what I'm describing, is that similar to what you saw up in Vancouver, those waters? Yeah, so the the spots right off of Vancouver, so the, the ones that you would dive commonly like Porto and Whitecliff and uh, Kelvin, if you knew what you were doing, like how to get there and how to dive there without having the neighbors call the cops and the rest. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, like a dirtbag diving scenario at Kelvin, but that was my favorite dive site. So there's no, almost no kelp. Um, you know, there's lots of other anemones and, 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 and stuff like that, but no, um, no kelp forest there. I think you'd have to go further up into the Emerald sea, mm, okay. which would be, you know, several hundred miles up, up the way. Um, but certainly, uh, sadly no Garibaldi's. That's a really hilarious fish. You know, back in the day when I was, when I kept fish, I had, um, parrot cichlids, uh, which are a bright orange fish that has a really goofy look on his face all the time. <laughs> and they're, they're aggressive, but fun, really fun fish to keep. I, I really enjoyed having him. Um, but, you know that I think that's more common towards the yeah towards the California coast mm, yeah uh, the Garibaldis and 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 that type of uh, kelp uh, you know here or, or here not in Toronto in Vancouver you'd have um, you know lingcod would be the mm. the kind of the big thing that you know you would see every dive right and then other than that yeah seals sea lions I mean there's people say killer whales I don't I don't I think killer whales can hear your regulator from Miles a long away. way away yeah yeah uh certainly long enough that you wouldn't see them right uh, they're they're, they're uh, animals don't get that big and that smart and that capable of taking down prey by just spending time around other big animals and and they've actually and I loosely remember the story something about a pod of killer whales that was hunting great whites to, to oh, eat, absolutely. The, eat the liver of the gray white so I mean that's kind of crazy yeah, I think I think that was off of uh, off of Baja. Yeah, I think so. If I remember correctly, but yeah, because I think at least one of the attacks was caught by a drone, which is insane. I mean, and it was like a three whale attack, and they basically ended up taking one bite 
from the shark and just removing, you know, a a, a liver the size of a, a medium sized child. Yeah. Like, and then just like being, all right, that's what we wanted. We'll see you later. So it's a good thing we didn't see any of these guys out there for me. Amazing <laughs> animal. Yeah. I would, you know, I've, I've, I love, I love watching those videos, especially, you know, I think it's around Sweden and the littorals around Sweden. You can snorkel mm. with them. Um, if you do chase snorkeling, I'm not even sure if that's fair to the whale. Yeah. I don't, I genuinely don't know. Cause you're, you are getting very close, which is uh, typically frowned upon at least probably within the North American t- context yeah, of whale sure. watching. Um, but you can, you can chase them down and, and get in the water and there's some, and they just, they just look like very, they, one of the few animals that I would say would, would be, I'm very scared of Yeah, like for no, no yeah. legit reason. There's no like recorded attack of a killer whale. They're just, it, it's one of those things that appears to be operating on an entirely different wavelength than the rest of the ocean. Yeah. The, a pure hunter. You've seen that thing, blackfish or, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so me too. I mean, I would be, it, it would definitely startle me if I saw one of those. That one and the, the other one to watch if you're, if you're a fan of orcas would be the whale. Mm. which is a, is a story about Luna, uh, a whale that essentially befriended a town way up north on BC coast. Oh, cool. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, I think it's Ryan Reynolds is the uh, the narrator for that one. It's pretty good. And then there ends up being a battle between the government and the native population there about kind of who who whose job is it to actually care for the whale? Because mm. it, it would very uncommon for a killer whale to leave its its family pod. Right. And it found this small kind of logging fishing town, um, and its name is Luna. So I'll put that in the show notes. It's, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, too, I'll, I'll be watching that. That sounds amazing. And then I, I see uh, I see uh, Hawaii on the list. Talk to me. It's one of my favorite dive spots. But I didn't. I did not do this type of dive. So that was the thing. So obviously, I knew I wanted to dive there. Um, and they this was on the Big Island Kona. So the structure, you know, Hawaii is a volcanic chain. So you go a few miles off and you're in thousands of feet of water. So this, I think it was the potentially the late seventies, early eighties, a kind of diving was created called blackwater diving. And what that is, it's essentially a drift dive in very, very deep water at night. So at the dive shop, this was not a planned thing. This is more, Mm -hmm. I want to dive there, but I don't really know. Went to the dive shop and there was this, you know, they f- manta rays feeding at night and kind of the the big ones that that everyone does. Like a flashlight feeding. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But then she said there's a dive that involves like creepy crowlies. She, she called it like the creepy crowley dive. I'm like, all right, that sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it turns out so what you do is you steam out to a few miles off the coast till you're in thousands of feet of water. Night falls, it's, you know, it's pitch black, and you get on a, a tether, you descend to 70 feet on a tether and you can't see, right? You, you have no idea because there, at this point there was no full moon, but there was nothing to gauge where you are. So you just watch your depth meter or you'll feel the, the tether kind of pull you back. So you go down 70 feet, you kind of, uh, you know, find neutral buoyancy there. You start at the bottom and you turn your lights off so it's pitch black. So you're literally, it's like a sensory deprivation kind of. And every now and then you turn your lights on, kind of move around. Or, or if you see something interesting, if you have your lights off, you will see bioluminescent creatures floating by you. So it's very like, you know, what I think a, tr- a crazy trip would be like, like seeing the, and, and obviously you're floating, right? You're, you're neutrally buoyant at this point. So you're floating, looking out and there are, uh, he, you know, the dive master said, yeah, we saw sharks the other week. We saw, we see whales on these things. So if something happens, like don't freak out, just kind of get in this Zen state of mind. 
Uh, and you do. That's the. Th- it's hard not to. And every now and then you'll turn the light on and you'll see something weird and interesting. Like because what happens is that all of the they're called vertical migrators. So all of the stuff from the deep sea comes up the water column and hangs out to feed. Uh, you know, on, on the uh, pelagic zone where you are, seventy feet down. So you see right. things that you normally would never see. And it was. And obviously, since you're drifting, you can get a lot more mileage down mm-hmm. there. And you slowly ascend, slowly kick up over the course of like, could be as long as an hour and look for different things on the water column. You'll see juvenile, everything, juvenile tuna, sailfish. Uh, and they're really interesting too. So the juveniles, you know, they hang out down low and, and come up until they're fully grown. So that was just a totally weird dive. I mean, I've done night diving, but I've never done something where like it's pitch black and you're, yeah. you, the, it goes away quickly, but at first you think like, wow, what if I did see something big or like you, the flashlight, the radius of the beam is small, right? So if you turn the flashlight on and something is occupying the entire radius of the <laughs> what the light is shining on, that would spook the mm-hmm. hell out of me. Luckily that didn't happen, but that that was a cool dive trip. And, and I tested a Certina, uh, the DS, the, the PH. 500m which is there it's a heritage model right is that the orange style one you've yeah, exactly. got on your insta yeah it's yeah, yeah, a yeah. sick looking watch it really is and this is a, a great watch and yeah i mean when we talk about and jason is really i mean i can't speak to this like jason can but jason has really told the truth behind testing dive watches right it's not as much of the, the t- a technical field test as it is something more philosophical and absolutely yeah yeah, yeah and and that it just made the the whole dive more fun and interesting. The, so the thing that the thing that's great about dive watches is um is to use them in their in their world in while diving amplifies the experience of diving. Exactly. And there's literally only one reason to spend a couple thousand dollars on gear, put your life in your own hands and in the hands of whoever serviced your regulator, <laughs> and, and however old and UV damaged your strap the straps for your mask are or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um. And then in this case you know, jump out of a boat in an offshore territory in the dark and trust that the lead will stay connected to the boat and the rest of it. And it's <laughs> yeah. exclusively for an experience that you can't get unless you take all those steps. Right. Right. Like there's no, you, you, you do some, some, well not some, you've done quite a bit of like a race car driving on track driving. Yeah. And like, there is no track driving on the road. You could try, no. you can go crazy if you want, but it's not the same because there's something about having, Certain safeties there and certain other safeties gone. Right. Parameters. Right. Exactly. And and it's about that experience. That's why that's why we have tracks. That's why we have scuba tanks is like you can do something that you can't do in your day to day world. You can't breathe underwater normally. You can't drive like a maniac unless, you know, no one's coming the other way. Right. Right. And, and that everyone around you is going to operate in a way that's predictable. Yeah, and exactly. uh, and 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 to be able to do any of these things, and and I assume that the same the same would play for all sorts of experiences that that I that my that haven't you know sparked something in my brain that makes me want to do it. But with diving, to do that, it's one thing to have a dive computer; it's great. It, that's more of like that's a safety thing. But there's something wholly cooler and like more romantic and just fun about diving with a dive watch. That's what it is. I, it, I think you touched on it. It's if you're diving. That's a romantic thing to do anyway. So mm-hmm. why not turn up the dial on the romance and yeah, for and sure. so forth. So that that was that dive and that was a, a lot of fun. And 
yeah, a new style of diving. I did some night diving in Vancouver, and I remember, you know, because I got certified in cold water mm-hmm. in five feet of visibility. Oof. So when I went on my on my night dive, I was like, this isn't that different. I can actually <laughs> see further. That's that's so funny. Like yeah. we all had the little neon glow glowers on, uh, yep. on the tank mounts. Uh-huh. So I could see where everyone was. All of a sudden, I was in Whitecliff Park in Vancouver, which is a, a very common dive site that we're, because you can dive at any depth you kind of want. It's a very gradual sort of shelf. Right. And then there's an anemone garden that you can eventually get to, which is quite fun. Even at night, at night, there's a lot going on. Yeah, Cold yeah. water at night is always busy, but it's also the best visibility. And I remember starting the dive really scared. Not scared, like I'm not going to tell anyone I was scared. I was too right, too right. proud or whatever. Yeah. But I was genuinely scared. It was like maybe my fifth dive or sixth dive. And uh, I was going for my advance. And this is this is part of the 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 itinerary. And yeah, I, I remember we, we got in the water. And once you're underwater and like, pulling on your reg it's the same and then you look around and you're like oh wait i can see my gloves yeah and and like it's dark but it's like i can see everybody else else's flashlight we can all do our hand signs this is fine i i, I would I, you know it's you're saying to to turn on your flashlight and have whatever it was take up the whole beam <laughs> i do imagine i do imagine in my the first place my mind goes thinking about a blackwater dive is yeah turning on your light and you have that moment like in jurassic park where it's just the uh, yeah, yeah. The T-Rex's eye and uh-huh. the iris gets really small. <laughs> Just do that and it's a, it's, yeah, it's a whale. That's exactly that. And even a whale would be, that would, fr- I would want to end my dive if I saw a whale down there, to be honest. Like, uh, I, I, I've wanted, um, yeah, it's, it's one of my life's absolute dreams to, uh, to dive or snorkel with a humpback. I think, I mean, this is possible and you should make that, you can make that a short term goal. Yeah. See a Cortez. Cause I think yeah. I could, I could probably on the same trip, I could conceivably do that and whale sharks, which are the two, yeah, that's right. two big uh, me- megafauna that I'd like to see. Cause you can go down to La Paz and you know, the joke is that if you go the right day, you can kind of walk across the water on their backs. Wow. There's enough of them down there. I don't know if that's true anymore, but back in the day, I've heard that too. Yeah. And with so many of those spots, you know, having now being protected. All, all those all those big guys are coming back because there's there's lots of fish in the area so that could be fun um all right so oh what so you were uh certina was hawaii what what was on wrist for did you have the certina on wrist for california no that i i i had my gmt my gmt master two on and yeah that's not a dive people say oh that's not a dive watch well i mean it kind of is it's based on the sub right and also yeah. that was more just to christen the watch to, it, that was yeah. not a work thing that was just a you know, let's get back in the water. Like let's, let's make it happen. But absolutely. So recently, and the piece probably won't come out by the time this airs, who knows, but it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, I did a follow-up test to the Certina that I used in Hawaii. And I did that this past weekend. And that, that was with the, the DS2 pH 200 M, which is the, you you found you found some tropical diving in uh, in the great state of Utah. That's right. Yeah, literally, which is <laughs> insane. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions, whatever it was years ago, this whole area of North America was a giant salt lake that went away, created the Salt Lake Basin, which is here. So there's high salinity in everything. Like you're, you'll be driving and salt will be on the car, like like dust, right? So imagine. So now a geothermal vent with an area that has such high salinity and and what do you get you get pretty much the same thing as a tropical ocean warm water that's salty right. so that's what how how warm though like in the 80s yeah in the 80s and and it, wow. actually 90 one of them was 90 degrees and 
And I oh. brought a wetsuit to wear. I was like, oh, man, that's stupid. You don't because I thought so. Again, over the pandemic, I was doing some uh, exploring the Florida aquifer system, which is also similar, but incredibly cold. It's like six to low 60s or something. Mm-hmm. So I was just, you know, tooling around an aquifer system thinking like, all right, this is similar, right? This is a hole with water in the middle of, uh, you know, land, right? So I was thinking it's mm-hmm. got to be cold. Get there and yeah, it's warm. And I, I should have known that to, you know, if it can support tropic life. So this is a place called Sea Base and it's out west of Salt Lake City. And yeah, it's a series of little uh, holes with the water is obviously geothermal. That's where it comes from. So it's it's warm. And then somewhere along the way, someone introduced tropical fish and figured that or found that they can survive and not just survive, they thrive. So so when you say a hole, what, so what's the is it? Is it 20 feet across? Is it a thousand feet across? Is it like, uh, I would is it say, more like a lagoon? Yeah, I would say similar to lagoon. It's more like there are three distinct holes. One actually is like a cenote type hole. It's, I don't know, mm-hmm. 10 feet across and 65 feet down. Then there are two congruent, like, oh, they're actually connected by a tunnel. So two pools. Okay. Yeah. And you can swim through the tunnel from one to the other. Uh, Two pools that go down to like 23 feet and 13 feet. So it's not particularly deep, but this time of year, the visibility is so bad that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Oh, really? But that's not the case in the winter, I hear. So, but it is cool. I mean, you will see visibility is good enough to see spade fish, bat fish, and some other species I couldn't identify. It looked like a rooster fish, but I I don't know if it was. But yeah, there's, there's stuff down there. And they used to have two nurse sharks living in there. No way. Yeah, which is just wild to think like and the way out there, like if you're going out from Salt Lake, it is nothing but desert. It looks like, you know, a wasteland on the way out. Then all of a sudden you get to this pool and to think that, you know, the way I was conceptualizing, like how far is this one batfish, whatever, away from the next closest one? And the answer is very far. (laughs) It's like a lost colony, a lost colony of spade fish or whatever. So... (laughs) Uh, yeah, that was very, very cool. And it was to, to test out the Sertina and just to do something interesting. They have a bunch of like little scamps and these were new to me and I, you should check them out because I know this is very much your vibe too, but yeah, the, it's like an Airstream, but instead of aluminum, it's fiberglass and they were made in the seventies. Oh, uh, Heaton almost bought one of these no before way. he bought the, the white, uh, the uh, Defender, the, the Defender. Yeah. Wow. He okay. was, he was looking at, um, I want to say like a late seventies, yep, early eighties. Were... It had been redone, but it had this like hilarious white and red yeah. exterior, a little bit like a teardrop trailer, but not teardroppy. Yeah. The same idea. A little more Airstream ish color yeah. shape, but yeah, that's exactly it. So I didn't know Heaton was looking at one of those, but yeah. Hilarious name for anything as well. The Scamp. Scamp. Yeah. Which is like. <laughs> Scamp is a kind of grouper-esque fish that lives in the Gulf too. So when I heard that, I was thinking, ah, interesting scamp. But yeah, you stay on the, you stay in these scamps and, and then you dive. And the diving was okay. I'm not going to say the diving was great. In fact, the, the mm-hmm. diving itself very short lived because visibility was awful. And yeah. it just also the salinity content feels higher than even the ocean. So buoyancy is kind of hard to get. And sure, uh, but it's just cool. Like you just. Do they just recommend overweighting then? You know, the interesting thing about it, when you say they recommend, it's it's very much your There's no your one own. there? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's really? Like, well, there, there's, there's someone there. <laughs> it's Utah, right? What yeah, am I thinking? Exactly. But yeah. there's someone there, but it's more like, you know, that's up to you. Wait, waiting, like, sure, you can ask them and they'll be like, they'll they'll look at you funny. <laughs> like, sure, yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, it was very much kind of a, a rogue operation. You get out there and you just do your thing, which which I like. I, the, the deregulation is my middle name. I don't I don't like oh, too yeah, many no, rules. So. I I agree. I mean, I guess I'm used to whenever I was traveling to dive, I was diving with uh, an outfit of some sort. Right, right. And and usually you can tell you can tell. Eventually, you stop saying this to people. Like I know what I'm doing. You just listen to what they say, and if it matters to you, you adapt to it. Yeah. Um. But there's yeah the the, the dive world is full of people who say nothing and have 10,000 dives yeah, and you don't realize how good they are until they're in the water. And then there's a lot of people who are on their 50th dive and don't have a handle on any of it, but will tell everyone on the boat how, how to dive yeah, that's and how it. to set up their, their equipment. So yeah, it's, it is one of those things where sometimes they say, well, in this scenario, you should overweight or underweight or, or that sort of thing. So that, that sounds cool. I hope, I hope you get a chance to go back um, in the winter and, and see if, see what it's like. Maybe actually get to play with some batfish. That's the idea. They're, they're a fun fish to be in the water with. Not all fish are. Some are pretty standoffish. Some are some get too close and yeah. are kind of creepy. Trigger fish. But batfish just kind of follow you around. Trigger fish, you know, on a recent episode, I, I, I explained my general distaste for uh, Mexican <laughs> hawkfish because uh, they'll give you a good chase. They will. Um, if, uh, if, if you get too close. But yeah, that's a... Uh, that's great, and it's really fun to hear that you've been out doing some diving. Um, I uh, I'm in the process of uh, of getting my gear reserviced, and uh, and and I guess I'm going to try my hand at something I told myself I really wasn't ever interested in, which is diving in Lake Ontario. Ooh, that'll be fun. I'll, I'll come up there and do it with you. Really? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, if you to. come up, let's do Tobermory for yes, sure. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Let's make it worth it. Uh, just getting in the water, you know. Yeah, I I miss it quite a bit. It's been it's been several years at this point. You know, uh, like you were saying between. It's, as soon as you give up a hobby that takes that much time, something always slides in yep. to fill its. It's never like you don't just suddenly have a free Saturday all the time, and you're like, "Huh, why am I? Why do I have nothing to do today?" It's like, so, "Oh no, I have two kids, so yeah, <laughs> I I have I have a you know three jobs now, yeah. uh, that sort of thing." So, yeah, it happens. Now, aside from diving. Uh, you also uh, spent some time genuinely abroad, like not not the difference between say Florida, Utah, New no, York. No, no. Yeah, genuinely. Uh, but where where did uh, where did you head to? Started well, Thailand only, but pretty much the idea was like, all right, you know, we, we've just the data's there. You can work from anywhere, uh, you know. And also at work, we were you know encouraged to do some like moonshot things, right? So I just I've always wanted to get back, and I thought about going back seriously, actually. Uh, I used to live there for a while. I think I talked mm-hmm. about it last episode or whatever. So, uh, yeah, kind of devised a plan, pitched it. It worked. I don't know how. I don't know what what kind of gods were smiling upon me that day. But to be honest, you could have. I, I could have done it anyway, right? Just could have just gone, right? As long as there's a good internet Absolutely. connection, that's all you really need to to do what you need to do. But yeah, long story short, pitched this trip, got approved, and actually was there partially for work. But I'll tell you a funny story. On the way there, something that I think uh, TGN listeners would just find find funny and interesting. So you have to lay over through Tokyo, and you know, doing these. I, and I'm so stoked for when you go to Japan. I want to I want to hear everything about that on a TGN episode. So someday, man, yeah. someday. It'll, it'll I was happen. so close. Yeah, I was <laughs> so close. I think I think yeah, it was going to be March fourth, uh, twenty twenty. So uh, was such was a bummer. I was supposed to be there. So eventually, someday, yeah, I'll make it there. But I'm I'm living I'm living eviscarily through <laughs> you at this point. So let, let's hear about your right. Tokyo layover. So yeah, the flight there is like I don't know, sixteen hours or something, or I don't know, maybe not that long, fourteen. So you're in a bit of a daze, and then you have to connect. So Bangkok, there is no way to go direct anymore. There used to be. That's not the case anymore. You connect. Tokyo is the quickest way there. So 
connect you through Tokyo. And uh, like I said, a little bit tired and, and out of it. And getting on the next plane from Tokyo to Bangkok on the tramway. Uh, it's it's evening time. And like we're walking out on the, uh, the jetway, the jetway. Mm-hmm. And it's squeaking like crazy. Like it's choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo. And, you know, there's those little rubber fittings between each module or whatever. And Yeah, like an accordion. Yeah, exactly. It's a little accordion thing. And, and I'm, I can see the the whatever these blocks are these metal pieces of the the jetway moving back and forth like i i'm I'm watching the accordions expand and contract right Mm -hmm. and hearing the squeaking but i'm looking outside and there's not really any and i was looking for like you know airports they tend to be windy because obviously it's a big piece of land with no obstructions right so wind can move quickly so i was looking around maybe what looking at uh like people's shirts flapping or something seeing what the hell is this uh moving around so much for and they're like eh well whatever get on the plane you know settle into a nice uh, Asahi or something and land in Bangkok and turns out there was an earthquake and that's what that was so that was an earthquake which definitely I mean this was not a crazy one it was a little one but it was enough to really like make you feel weird right like it felt weird on walking mm-hmm. out on the tramway so so that was kind of the way this whole trip got started, which is interesting. Just you start with a little uh, experiencing an earthquake in Japan for the first time. And and maybe the only time, who knows, but it's the first earthquake period I, I've been through. So that was crazy and, and kind of nice, a nice way to start off. You know, it didn't cause any damage, so it was all good. I guess it, it's lucky that, you know, you were in a suspended thing that's meant to move around a little bit. Exactly. And, and it probably was a exacerbated by that right because it's free floating it's on some wheels Mm -hmm. or whatever but so that was just opening the trip is an interesting little story uh then yeah so like i said i was there for work but then also did some things that were just you know personal personal things and and one of them uh was a toyota renting a toyota hilux Mm -hmm. which uh yeah it's like a 2.2 or 2.5 turbo diesel motor torquey is all hell five speed and cruising up around northern Thailand, which uh, is is gorgeous. You you will fall in love with it when you see it. It's uh, I'm sure it's stunning. One of the the little interesting bits up there was that because of COVID, up there you have a bunch of indigenous, uh, what what they call villages. I mean that's that's what they say, right? So these indigenous communities that they actually cordoned off because they didn't want covid to go in and, and decimate i mean there's no yeah. like hospitals are not around these communities so yeah that makes sense they were doing that all over the country in, in the north one of these checkpoints kind of rolled up to and uh the guy was like no turn around right now he was not happy at all to see some some you know western dude ask to go through the gate right then okay so turn around go the other way one gate they they did they they opened right and they probably shouldn't have because <laughs> we we were on this road. And they took a picture of our passports beforehand mm-hmm. because, I don't know, record, a matter of record, right? But then they open the gate, you keep going, and all of a sudden you can look to your left and you see the a Burmese military encampment. So it turns out it was the border of Thailand and Burma. <laughs> and uh, Shouldn't have been that easy, maybe. Yeah, it shouldn't have been that easy, but but it was. And <laughs> And the, the Burmese flag is interesting. It, it looks like it should be like a Rastafarian thing. It's it's your uh, 
red, yellow, green, and it has a black star in the middle. So look over to the left and see an encampment with the Burmese flag. And then every 20 or so yards, there's young men with uh, submachine guns lining this road. And it kind of snakes mm-hmm. in and out of Burma. So you're you're crossing the border and coming back in, crossing the border and coming back in. And why they're there is because essentially, like while you're in on the Burmese side of the border, you can get out of the car and you're in Burma, right? You could, but they're there to act as a fence. So that was kind of interesting. And, you know, cruising along that, the and this is, a, you probably know about these already, but there is a Japanese cognate of the the H1 and it's called a Toyota Mega Cruiser. So, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know these guys. So meanwhile, like Toyota Mega Cruiser. I mean, I've seen a picture of it or, what, or read about it on Wikipedia, that sort of thing. Well, <laughs> I haven't seen one. This was in person. and That's great. And they were just cruising up and down this road. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? And yeah, so it turns out also, at, meanwhile, there, and this was, you know, a few months ago, there's a civil war going on in Burma. And uh, that was one of the hot zones, too. So it was one of the rebel-held ter- territories. And uh yeah, just kind of cool. It felt very TGN that that moment, you know. Um, and it was cool. Just it, also the Hilux. I don't know if Canada gets them. I don't think so, right? No. Yeah. So no, I think I think the closest we've had them is like when Top Gear brought them here to to drive to the south or to the North Pole. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the AT thirty eight or whatever that like Arctic version. Yeah, with the ridiculous tires yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a few other a few other. You know, I think they probably have beefed up heaters and yeah. the rest of it. But yeah, so. So that was cool too, just kind of the Hilux experience and so forth. And and yeah, that was a, a wild, wild thing to have happened. It reminded me, yeah, a lot of the stories I've heard on, on TGN. And uh yeah, it was just kind of cool to end up somewhere where you wouldn't wouldn't necessarily think and, and in a in a place where genuinely, if something went wrong, that's it. Like that's it. There's no <laughs> there's no no support system. Yeah, for Myanmar, you you would be you're out there. Yeah, you're for out sure, there. exactly. Yeah. Uh, that that's a that's a fringe a fringe player, and probably you know, in a lot of places, you know, when when you go through passport control, it's it's not that they care that you're there. No one cares. If they care, they're not going to let you. Basically, right, exactly. It's so that if you don't come back, they have some idea of where you are. Yeah. But getting a picture at a gate <laughs> before you rolled into Myanmar <laughs> is kind of like well. I don't think you know. May, may, maybe if the photo wasn't blurry on this guy's phone, well, but is 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 he gonna check with search and rescue? And if if you know he doesn't see that picture no. again, or does it just go into the cloud? And that's, that's I think the end so. Of and I'm sure on on the the <laughs> Myanmar side, they would love to have you. You know, <laughs> they would love yeah, to have yeah, you there. Sure. So. Hey. so that was just a funny little bit. But that was a that was the mountains. There was another instance that was kind of cool, uh, which was the ocean. So. Uh, down in the Andaman Sea, we took out a little. Google that. Yeah, that was that's the the western side of Thailand, that chain of islands down near southern Thailand, Malaysia, where they where the border is. There. Oh, okay, yeah. other side of the yeah, Gulf. Yeah, exactly. So Gulf it. of Thailand on the east, Andaman to the west, and uh, this is just just an old fish tale, but it's not going to be exaggerated. Went out on these things called long tails. You know, long tails. Like those wooden, not offhand, no. They're imagine just kind of like a, it's a wooden boat, a giant canoe is the architecture, I guess you would say. Okay, like and then with like an outrigger on it. They don't have outriggers, but what they do is they take disused pickup truck motors and they mount them on a gimbal, and have a direct drive shaft with a little prop. Okay, so yeah. So it's kind of. I think I, I think I've seen that 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 vein of thing in uh, in. Uh, Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. This this whole area. I mean, it's a big thing over there. 
So a little long tail there. They're not really for the open ocean, really. I mean, you, you can do it, but like one storm rolls in, it's not a good scene. But uh, rented one of those or, or hired, hired a guy who kind of knew the water. He was a local, local guide, fishing guide. And he asked like, you know, what kind of fish do you want to go out for today? And I had seen on one of these advertisements, which were like looked like they were made in Microsoft Word or something, I saw that someone was holding up a sailfish. And I asked him, like, how about a sailfish? And he's like, yeah, well, they're not really biting this time of year, but like, who knows? Maybe we'll give it a shot. Because, you know, you should go for something that you're sure to catch, grouper, something like that. Like, mm-hmm. that's what you really should go for. You're you're off the coast of Thailand now, and your intention is to catch something for dinner that yeah, night? Exactly. Catch, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like exactly. So coach. you do really want to catch you something. Do. This isn't just like, I spent $500 to leave the port of San Diego, and I better come back with a couple of fish, otherwise and I didn't get anything here's for Here's the yeah. craziest thing, and, and this is nuts, and it almost makes <laughs> me feel bad, but you don't spend $500, you spend $30. It's like, or it's, mm. it's somewhere between $30 and $100 for the day, which is insane, but... Yeah, for sure. Steam out, catch some bait. And then we, the the, the guy says, you know, if there are going to be any sailfish around here, it's going to be in this pass. So we go to the pass and it's beautiful. And, and another TGN point I want to make is that hit, you know, hit home for me was the amount of garbage that's consuming the ocean is it's bad. And, and you can see it's it brutal. out there. And uh, this kind of underscored the importance of doing something, uh, which I know and you and Jason are also... A large proponent of, but this stunning place, like the visibility is, you know, almost unlimited. It's electric blue water. It's, you know, you're up, it's white sand beaches. It's everything you would imagine, like the stuff from the movie, The Beach, you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie, just, just like that. So the guy takes a piece, he just tears a little piece of styrofoam off this, (laughs) off a cooler or something and kind of wraps the line around a few times and puts whatever, I don't know, the equivalent of like a spearing or just a little minnow or something, right? Mm-hmm. Tosses it in the water and he floats it out, floats it out pretty far away from the boat. And uh, we're just sitting there, I don't know, drinking a beer, chatting, talking about, uh, we have a few rods in the water and we're pulling up grouper here and there and just catching little things. And all of a sudden, you know, you hear that drag on, on the big rod and off in the distance, we saw a sailfish breach the water and jump out. And then lost him, lost him. As soon as we caught him, lost him. You just slipped the line? You know, the thing about them, that their mouths, there's not a whole lot of, they, they can spit the hook real easily. And another thing oh, they okay. could do is they can throw their stomachs, which is very interesting. And that will also dislodge the hook often. Yikes. So we knew, and, and even the guide was like, you know, they're not, this is uncommon that they're here, but we knew they were there. So, all right, we're going to give it another shot. You didn't come this far to come this far, you know? And, uh... <laughs> Basically, 40 minutes goes by, an hour or something. And keep in mind, that you close to the equator, the sun is, like, killing us all. Yeah, you're turning. cooking. Yeah, we're getting cooked. Then all of a sudden, you hear that drag start going again. And, uh, yep, there's another sailfish on. Maybe the same one, maybe not. They, they school up to a degree. <laughs> but So bring in, start reeling it in. I mean, it doesn't take a, a ton of time, but it takes a ton of muscle. And we're yeah. on this kind of, like, I'm not going to call it rinky-dink, but... I will. <laughs> I'm, I'm this little long tail and using kind of, you know, old fishing equipment that it's rental, right? I mean, this is a charter service. It's not, you know, the best gear. And yeah, pretty much he, the, the guide is orienting the boat to keep the front pointed towards the sailfish, but he's running under the boat, all sorts of funny stuff. And 
yeah, it was a, a pretty long, intense battle, but we got him up mm-hmm. next to the boat and guy hops off, grabs the bill with his bare hands, a madman, a true madman. Yeah. And kind of hoists it up into the boat and, you know, they're gorgeous fish when they first come out of the water. Yeah, they they're really are. Absolutely stunning. That special, that sequence from um, Blue Planet. Oh, yep. With the yeah. with the bait ball, which is kind of the first time I saw kind of kind of what they like a, it's like you know you see a race car in a in a museum yeah. or parked and you're like oh that's cool and then it's a different thing if you see it ripping down the corkscrew at Laguna Seca and to see it to see the sailfish like you know ripping around divers oh. grabbing fish hitting the surface the gannets and the 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 birds coming yeah. from the top and the rest of it that sequence was incredible it was uh, give me a whole different level of respect for that fish they're just operating on a Time moves a little bit differently for something that moves that freely through the water. And and I think they're one of the fastest fish in the ocean. And they use that sail to control their pitch and their movements. And yeah, it was just, so that was a grail fish for me. I mean, that was a first time, hopefully not the last time, but an absolute grail. And it blew me away, right? Like as a fisherman and so forth, like yeah. there are these moments where like this happened. And um, that's great. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And yeah. And and is that is that one that you you ended up eating? You eat yeah. Selfish? Oh yeah. 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 So and how was it? So that was even crazier. So you're out there in the Andaman. Kolipe is the closest island, but there's a bunch of small little you know uninhabited islands around the area. So we cut a little chunk off, and the, the guy had brought some of this Thai hot sauce, the Thai seafood hot sauce. It's green. Okay. Yeah, we barbecued it up on the beach. We did a catch and cook same day. So barbecued it on this deserted tropical island beach, and it was just incredible. Had a great meal. Like a like a scene out of uh, out of uh, media. It really, yeah, it, it it felt just like that. And then obviously the fish is massive, so gave mm-hmm. the rest to everyone back on the island, and and everyone ate well that night. You know, that's killer. So that was it. It was a nice experience. And then uh, in in Thailand, did you get into any watch stuff? Any any more extensive, you know, car? I mean, the car stuff is kind of limited in Southeast Asia because just because their relationship with cars is so different than ours. They're a fortune. Yeah, they're a fortune. Uh, typically, yes. the tax thing is insane, so owning a car isn't the same thing as it is here. It it is true, but there's a very rich, vibrant culture. And the thing is, we could talk for hours about this, so we'll keep it. We'll breeze through for it. Sure. But I will tell you about the car thing. <laughs> and this is a guy you should link up to on the the show notes. There's a few things. So yes, cars are a fortune, but the other thing is, and no judgment or whatever, but there is an incredible wealth gap there too. So the mm-hmm. haves will have, you know, and and they do. So you yeah. get things and you get access to things that are just absolutely insane. So one of the guys who I think we should link up to the show notes is Hang's Garage, H-E-N-G, Possessive Garage. Okay. And it's a private museum with some of the rarest Ooh. JDM stuff. There's another guy, uh, Tenster, who you might even follow. I don't know, but he's a big he's big on Instagram. He's a okay. Porsche collector. Um, and we did. We actually ended up catching the car show there, like the the Bangkok Automotive Show. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Which oh, like a, cool. like the trade show. Yeah, like a trade show. Oh, and, right. And okay, cool. There's this the the coolest thing is that you see a bunch of stuff that just does not come here. Like mm-hmm. that's the the most neat thing. And what another thing that kind of stuck out was that the Chinese manufacturers are really trying to capitalize on these these markets so there's you know a bunch of new mg is now a chinese the Mm -hmm. mg that you know um and they're trying to make a huge push in thailand another thing called like cherry motors is making a huge push so saw things that i've never seen before but yeah the car stuff i will say like 
uh, yeah, there's a ton. Yes, it's true. The relationship is different. It's not as democratic or accessible. But we ended up going to some, you know, incredible museums, meeting people through the car world. And that was just personal, right? There's not, nothing to do with work. Just kind of a, just a fun thing to, to do. On the watch side, that was work. So it was like, I was there to do it and you can't not come back with a good story. And luckily, we did. And I won't, you know, I'll, I'll this will all come out on, on Hodinkee sometime in September, hopefully, if things go to plan. Okay. I won't blow the whole thing up, but I will yeah, tell don't you. Yeah, too hard. There is is one that that I've kind of been working on uh, for years now, and I just published a little piece on Hodinkee about the Yellow Monster, which I know you know mm-hmm. well too. But it was sort of this. Qu- yeah, it was a great story. Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, it was a quest to answer the question: Why are there so many limited edition Seikos in Thailand? So that was kind of the that was the main goal: find out why, answer this question. And it's not a question that's that easy to answer. And it took me to some interesting places, some some collectors that I would never have thought even had these things. So much like with cars, there's two things. There's a little bit of Japanese otaku level, like this incredibly deep knowledge. Like we're enthusiasts, right? I'm not an obsessive. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's there a different are collectors. Thing. A totally different thing. And and along the way, I met some true obsessives who have every single limited edition reference number Fantastic. that you can imagine. So that'll that'll come out there. But then ended up talking to the CEO of Thailand, Seiko Thailand, who is just the coolest dude ever. And and you really, you start to see things differently. Where the the, the difference between the East and the West are, are highlighted. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of unity or the commonality between watch people is also highlighted. But yeah, ended up, his name is Akashi-san. He's Japanese and he's down there kind of taking care of the Thai market. Spent a long time with him asking him, you know, why is this? And to sum it all up, the answer is a perfect storm of good relationships, a healthy market, and life life operates differently in the developing world in general and specifically Southeast Asia, where like if you want to do something, it takes a little money and knowing the right people. And that's the answer. <laughs> the real answer is things can get done because there are no guardrails like there are here. Like you're not going to have to go through a million layers of bureaucracy sure when dealing with seiko hq you might but they they realize that thailand is a bit of a different animal that you don't try and you know fight you just go with it and and that's why we see all these limited editions is because the market has has learned to appreciate them and and actually appreciate them here you know some limited editions are hit or miss but there and there too but the market loves them and because Early on, a few times it worked. They get the clearance to do it again and again and again. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I will say, when you're ready to do a, a TGN limited edition, I'll connect you with some people because they can make it happen. A limited well, edition Seika. It's something that comes up a lot. The idea of a TGN LE, and and I love I love the idea until you actually start doing the math yeah. of buy, of buying X number of watches so that they can be like I don't have a quarter million dollars to make to buy enough stock to sell to the people who are currently listening to this episode. You know what I mean? Like I like take take from a guy who just spent and let's be let me be clear deep into the four figures uh-huh. for what is just merch that we're going to announce in the coming months. Yeah, yeah. And it was only like one part of the merch. I can't imagine what it would cost to put to do like 250 watches, 500 watches like to the extent where like you own them. So when you sell them the profit's yours rather than Right. You getting a small cut when somebody else sells it for you. 
So it really is just a math thing. It's not like it's not like we haven't dreamed of doing. I mean, a Seiko LE for TGM would be the best. That'd be bonkers. Well, be so fun. Like I said, there, so may, maybe someday there are fewer guardrails. So when the time comes, uh, I think this might be the way. But so for for anyone who who wants the, the amount of the story that's already been told, Cole did this really great piece called um, uh, I finally found my Holy Grail watch. Here's why I didn't buy it. And I'm, I'm not, I'm absolutely going to bury the lead. And like, we don't have to explain the truly fantastic price point of this yellow <laughs> dial, this yellow dial monster. And I, I almost guarantee that like, maybe not as ubiquitous as the SKX 007, but like a good portion of, the people listening now, including myself and you, have owned a monster, if not five monsters, yeah, yeah. O- over the time. And and it's a huge mistake of me for me that I sold. I had a, a series one orange that was perfect. Mm. I should have just kept it. It was worth nothing when I sold it, and it, I just sold it to buy a different two hundred dollar watch. And uh, I should definitely rebuy one. But you you track down this. You know, it's a yellow dial with a black riot, uh, limited edition version. And it really is a genuinely special thing, but I, my my jaw hit the floor when I saw what they were asking for. It. Yeah, it's insane. It's you know, just, it was like seven thousand, eight thousand dollars. Yeah, it's a very good reason why you didn't, why you decided that wasn't going to be the monster for you. No, and that's and that's not the the foreigner price. Like that's what they. And here's the thing: I bet you someone will pay that though, I because I, I know that he has sold similar ones for a little less than that. I mean, there's, there's some numerology behind the yeah. inflated price. But I mean, the, 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 that, that goes for all sorts of stuff. It's just it's uncommon to see that number attributed to not just to a Seiko, but to a Seiko that, if I'm honest, was never really the the benchmark for a really well-made watch. No, no. They are adequate timekeepers, <laughs> a little wabi-sabi when it comes to the fit and finish, yep. especially depending on... One reference to another yeah. for a seven eight one or a seven seven nine could feel very different. You could pull them out of the box at the same time, and you know it's just it was a hundred fifty dollar watch. It really was. So it's it, it is a weird thing to see a hundred and fifty dollar watch go to eight grand <laughs> and know that nothing changed about its actual physical properties. No time time. It's time just changing. it's so popular. Yeah. yeah. The photos turned out really well too, because yellow is not an easy one to color, uh, capture. Right, right. And I, I thought I thought you did a, a really nice job with the with the photos. Well, thank there. you. Yeah, and yeah, cool story. Yeah, and there'll be more. There'll be more. There's also an aviation story, which is is pretty cool. Where I got to do some flying in an ultralight, and then talk to a collector who has another thing. Like we talked about, like the car scene. Like there are crazy collections that you just don't think about you think oh you know toronto new york san francisco whatever i and you're about to see it there are insane collections in the corners of the world that you just don't really think about and that's what this whole project kind of highlighted for me was yeah when i was talking about the commonality of us all like there are just insane things and tons of passion and enthusiasm. And yes, it's expressed a little differently and sometimes in a better way. Like I find you and I both know, like our community can be a bit uh, special at times, you know, mm-hmm. so dense. The, the, the dense at times. Yeah. So going over and, and kind of like getting parachuting, parachuting into the same world in a different yeah, paradigm sure. or whatever is, is cool. And, and you get to see how, they can do it right sometimes. So I'll, I'll get into that. So September that'll happen. And, uh, but yeah, that, that was Thailand in a nutshell. It's a pandemic in a nutshell. Like that's, uh, obviously there's enough here to break into another show eventually, maybe after this next story comes out, 
have you back on for Cole Pennington 3, CP3. Wow, I like it. This is just CP2, so let's not go too quick. (laughs) I do have a couple quick follow-ups. You know, we're we're an hour and a half in. We've got some time for for final notes. Um, You've got a cool patch project that I'd like to hear a little bit about. But when you're doing this kind of travel, Mm -hmm. I assume you're not a checked bag guy? For this, I had to be, but normally no. Because you were there for a long time? Uh, three months, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. That's that's a different world. So, aside from not counting the the suitcase full of watches that nobody w- was watching closely enough, <laughs> and your clothes, um, what is what's the what's the kit look like to go there? Because you've got a camera, yeah, which means you have batteries and chargers, and and I assume you have some other tools. Uh, what w- what are you carrying? People people are going to want to know. All right. So the setup. So I I am a gearhead like yourself, and and like mm-hmm. the the philosophical approach of putting together something in my head. But for this, it was very much like run what you brung, you know, like piece together the kit as, as you can. So I will say started gear wise. We start with the, the North face, those classic North face duffels. You remember the ones from like the mid to late 2000s. Yeah, of course. They're, yeah. I don't know. They're rubberized in some fashion, ripstop rubberized coating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can set them down in a, in, on a dirty surface, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So there, yeah. there's that. Stuffed that full of the important stuff. So it was electronics, cameras, and so forth. And the camera that I'm using is as a Leica that I got from from work, actually. It's the... Uh, oh, nice. Okay. You know, it's... This CL? Yeah, like a CL, exactly. Yeah, so killer. I, I want, obviously... You, you've been happy with it? Yeah, I mean, low light? No, not at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, small sensors, yeah. right? But in terms of travel, yeah, it's been perfect. And the thing it's is... It's the right size. Exactly, it's the right size. So that worked out nicely. Then move on to the... Next thing is the Kaziri. It's an Arcteryx Kaziri. I don't know, maybe like a 18 liter pack. Maybe. Does that sound about right there? Uh, it certainly could be. I mean, 18 is not very big. All right. This is maybe somewhere between 18 and 30, let's say. <laughs> but it's okay. a, something I bought. I used to be a bike mechanic in college and got that, uh, the pro deals. And I went, you know, went nuts with the Arcteryx stuff. And here, here's the thing. I yep. mean, it has lasted, and that was in college. I graduated in 2010. So I've been using it since then. And uh, stuff that full of diving gear. I use the uh, the rocket fins that Jason, I understand, also uses. And Scuba Pro, Scuba Pro kit otherwise. And a, uh, a little spear gun, a mini spear gun made by <laughs> JBL. And then some fishing stuff. I use I pretty much exclusively use Shimano stuff. So some fishing stuff, and then picked up some fishing stuff there. And move, moving a move like flying with a spear gun in your bag, difficult? Checked. So checked. Okay, but, I understand. But yes, understood. it does get. I mean, you can you can do it. Definitely, some stuff did get. I, every single transit point got asked what what about this stuff and all that. So. Um, and the watch selection, like the daily wear, the idea was to wear the hell out of the GMT, just wear that. Okay. And, um, brought along the Seiko SRQ 029, awesome watch. Mm -hmm. And then Seamaster, I think it might be like a a few watches, not obviously not the whole collection, just brought four or five watches. And then, uh, what else there gear wise, a Moishant flashlight. Sure. Yeah. Gotta no knives this time. Simply because, oh, that's not true. Uh, yeah, brought my dive knife, um, which is a little Amazon job, but has been working like a charm. Uh, and Iron Ranger boots, which I know you like too. 
well worn in for northern jungle hiking red clouds mm-hmm. collective wax canvas pants which i've just accepted that once they reach a certain level of dirtiness you, you can't wash these things you can scrub them clean maybe but yeah 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 i was just thinking all right like they're already like the grease has found its way in there stuff like that so that's what i used for all the the northern stuff just to loop back you're hiking around in in red wings iron rangers yeah Oh, wow. That's ballsy. All right. Yeah. You kind of, but up there, it's more like you have to, it's not really as, it's more just keep everything protected because. I mean, they're, they're, they're amazing boots. I'm, I, it's funny, you know, I, I guess, I guess I have, I have taken mine just about everywhere I've ever been. That's the thing. It's uh, more like. So that's fair. Yeah. Get yeah. your boots worn in somewhere cool. Like give them a story too. So oh, yeah, for sure. They last forever. Exactly. That's the thing. And these are like the reverse grain. So the leather is reversed. So, oh, okay. The, um, yeah, I know, I know the ones you mean. Yeah. So yeah, those I think have a lug, okay. a nor- like a vibram sole. So you, you could like stand on wet concrete without falling over. Yeah. That, I mean, they feel that way and then they definitely worked. And then, then some throwaway Nikes and stuff for the South. And, and you know what? I have been toying with the idea of picking up a pair of Crocs for, for maritime operations. You're out of control. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, maybe like some real tree camo Crocs, you know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, you do you. I'm. I'm not gonna gatekeep. I'm not gonna gate gatekeep footwear. But yeah. there's few things I dislike as much as Crocs. I know. I know that. Um, you know. I. I think they're a, a pretty hilarious thing to see people wear. Uh, in general. But I. You know. I also. Uh, who. Who am I to judge? At a certain point, I wear. Uh, you know. Uh, these days, I'm. I'm mostly living in camp socks and those like vegan foam Birkenstocks. Oh, I know. I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, that's as close as Birkenstocks really get into making Crocs. So I, I mean, I think if, you know, to, to, to a, a third party from a different world, we're, we're not, it's not, there's no difference. Yeah, we're there. more similar than different. <laughs> I won't hold Crocs against you. All right. They're, they're popular for a reason. I'm sure it's just not a reason that speaks to me. <laughs> so uh, before we get into final notes, tell me a little bit about the, uh, this patch project. So yeah, I've been collecting patches since I was, you know, a kid. I think they're cool. They're they're the only kind of physical memento from ideas. Like like I don't know, C Lab, for instance. Like what what can you own from C Lab? Nothing. But you can own a patch. And yep. I think so I also have a sub mechanophilia patch, which Jason sent me, which I did a little something special with too. But a while ago I had this idea. I mean, I started this project a long time ago, but wanted to make watch pouches with thematic patches so mm-hmm. like i'll show you one you can't see this but uh this is a c-lab patch. oh look at that very cool yeah it's um, like a, a kind of a, a rectangular patch for c-lab with a big red arrow yeah. facing down it, what is that um what's the white line on the arrow that's it looks like the profile of a man so it's man in the sea operations. oh i see yeah okay yeah that makes sense very cool and that otherwise that's on like a neoprene two watch roll so here's the thing so thailand again is a, a place where industrial manufacturing happens and it's also acceptable so we went to this fabric market and bought a bunch of different materials wax canvas denim you know all sorts of stuff and this is three and a half mil neoprene what you would make a wetsuit out of so obviously the idea is a wetsuit dive pouch, right that's very cool yeah it made them for myself right just interesting things here's an aqualung one that's the con shelf regulator <laughs> yeah. And when I was living in Pensacola, I, there was a little military surplus store that had kind of, of a, a rotating selection of patches. Pensacola is every service is represented there and operations take place there and you'll have mission patches and very cool stuff. So I found like the technician patch of the, the people, Draeger equipment. Draeger is the scuba mm-hmm. equipment. 
they do, you know, all sorts of stuff, but a specific rebreather that they make for the seals. So it's the little like service technician patch for the people working on the seal rebreathers, like very just deep cut, cool stuff, collecting these patches. And I even put out a call on Instagram and, you know, like, like you, I talk to readers and stuff and some guys are, some guys are actually doing things I can't even talk about, like on the show, right? Doing very cool things. And they, they sent in patches from, <laughs> from their units and oh no way. So I've been collecting them and, you know, have, you know, I don't know, close to a hundred or something and wanted to do something to give back. And initially I was just going to sell them and, take all the money and put it towards like restoring warbirds or something like that. Sure. But then just I thought, you know, even that I'm not going to do, I'm just going to give them to people, like give these things to people. Like people were kind enough to send me patches and I'll keep some of those just as mementos, you know, yeah. a token of the friendship. But then some of the, the patches I bought like in Pensacola and things from along the way, just give out. And there are just a bunch of really cool ones. And, you know, some wild stuff. I started doing some research. Like there's this one called, uh, oh man, I'll forget the name now, but it was a, an operation in Antarctica in the late fifties. And I bought a patch not knowing really what it was. I just thought it was a cool patch, mm-hmm. brought it home, start Googling around. And it's this incredible, it's a lot like watches. I mean, it's a lot like the always read the case back then. Yeah, like for sure. one little clue sends you down this rabbit hole. So in Thailand, you know, I can't do it on my own, right? I don't know how to make these things. So yeah, uh, you know, linked up with a, a, a craftsman who pretty much made all these pouches. So there, there's some on the way to Toronto and, and Minnesota too. And uh, oh man, I can't, I'm so excited. Well, as, uh, for anyone listening, maybe Cole, are, did you plan on putting them on your Instagram at all? Yeah, like yeah. A picture of a bunch of them. Sure. Uh, that way, or or send me a picture. I'll put it in the show notes. Perfect. So if you're listening, subscribe to the show notes. Notes us at greatnado.com as I talked about at the top of the show, and I'll put I'll include a, a photo in the um in the in the story sweet yeah and that that was that was one of the the projects that i that i did in thailand which i thought was just really cool like what can you do with patches that intersects our watch hobby and then also kind of tells a larger story so so that was that and it's a little bit more chill than putting it on a jean jacket yeah exactly like i feel like as soon as you put it on a piece of clothing i even felt this with the tgn patches we made back in 16 when i put it on a piece of clothing i was like i don't like I make this show and I don't feel like I should put it on, on a piece of clothing. And if it was like a military patch or a C-Lab patch, I would just feel like a, like a bit of a poser exactly. putting it on my jean jacket. And, but on a, on a watch roll, it's more of like a place of reverence. Right. And uh, like it has a different context than putting it on a uniform, basically. Yeah. It's not, it's not, yeah, like posery at all. Like mm-hmm. I found some old Grumman before the Northrop Grumman merger, put it on some uh, old canvas from a flight suit. And then that's what I put my, my GMT in. Like, so there's a thematic link between all of this stuff. And, and that's yeah. why it's cool. Like, and you'll see what's coming your way. You'll like, you'll like it there. You'll, you'll get the, the theme behind it, but uh, I'm pumped dude. Thanks in advance. Of course, that's of awfully course. sweet of you to think of us. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I think that basically cuts us through most of the notes. We're at a little over an hour and a half now. Wow. Uh, and anything you think we missed? Nah, I think we, we covered a lot of ground, <laughs> I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, this has been fun. It's nice to get a chance to catch up with you. You know, we share a phone call every few weeks. Yeah. Uh, but usually it's not like, it's, it's usually about like work stuff yeah. or like day, day-to-day stress. It's not this kind of nice, uh, retelling of a time when I think a lot of people, myself included, you know, didn't, didn't get it, didn't get out fishing and diving and, you know, flying ultralight planes. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm proud to know that, you know, people like you exist out there who, who 
you know, put some of these experiences ahead of the content schedule <laughs> and, and, and actually got out and, and did some stuff. It, it makes me feel, uh, feel like there's, you know, there's a world, a world on the other side of this where we'll all go back to it. It's true. And hopefully we'll never have this again to happen, obviously, but absolutely. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's not think about that if we don't <laughs> have to at this moment, but, uh, how, how about you say we jump into some final notes? Yes, sir. Uh, you want to go first? Yeah, so I'd like to to recommend a, a YouTube channel that I've been following for a long time and that I also try and emulate, like, you know, I like to actually it, it, do the things that I see. And it's Outdoor Chef Life. Have you seen it or no? I haven't, no. All right. So, but I, I, I clicked into it when I saw it in the show notes. It looks fascinating. I've yeah, subscribed. A fellow named Taku and his girlfriend, Jocelyn, they're doing, they're doing a little bit of van life, but really they're about catch and cook, foraging. And what I like about it is... The, the vibe is very authentic. It's not the, something, something's almost come together too well. Like, like I mentioned an old Seiko piece, like a, a Tacoma, a Yeti, like they're, they're buying into a stereotype. Well, there's, there right? is the, there is that aesthetic. Yeah. Exactly. That like established aesthetic, the starter pack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this guy's well beyond that. You don't get that. Like that's a lot of YouTube is that it's like you, you oh, can yeah. tell they bought the starter pack and the, the YouTube channel follows, right? Like this is not and, that. And, and like at a certain level, YouTube tends to reward it. Yeah, it, it really you, does. You see something you already have a context for. That's what you click on. That's what people say, go to like and subscribe. Right. But yeah, there's there's definitely a lot out there that that doesn't necessarily follow. Whether you know, five years ago maybe it was like adventure blo- vlogging, mm-hmm. um, or or you know, extreme sports vlogging, and then that became van life stuff, and van life kind of became like a return to like a dirtbag lifestyle, but yeah. it's a dirtbag lifestyle with a thousand dollar cooler, right? And you know, a, a, a hundred and fifty thousand dollar van and 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 it's it's it is kind of a weird thing. So to see see anyone outside that mold feels a little bit more, you know. For me, whenever I want when I'm watching any outdoor YouTube stuff, I want to I want a little bit of that like Dick Prennicky, mm. uh alone in the wilderness, yeah. which is like there's just a legitimacy to the way that he approached all of it that didn't feel like it needed to be liked, yeah, exactly, or even necessarily wanted to be, yeah. And and that's so when looking at modern media. To find something mm-hmm. like that is interesting. And this has that authentic vibe. So fantastic. Definitely. I would go check that out. Very, very TGN as well. So before I get to mine, what's a, what's a dish that they've made that you've made or, or something that directly that you've picked up that that's paid off? So, all right. Because I can link to a specific episode if that's more valuable than just the channel. There's something that I want to do. I've, I've done a few okay. things from him for sure. And I've learned a lot, but a lot of that is freshwater catch and cook stuff. But okay. Something I want to do that that he's done, he goes foraging for harvesting sea urchin, and uh, oh. so basically, like one of his things is yeah, like how. And number one, he ha- he is Japanese, so he injects a lot of Japanese influence into what he's making and cooking and the recipes that he's coming up with. And he's a chef by trade too. But one of the things that he has done, and I just think oh, I gotta go do that, is diving around Central California foraging for. Uh, kelp, a specific kind of kelp there, and and sea urchin, and extracting the uni, which you know, mm-hmm. if you want to go buy that at the store, that's ungodly expensive. Yeah, it won't taste as good. Yeah, exactly. So, and he and he shows that yeah, you can you can go get the like like you know, it's possible just to go do it yourself. So that's something I would like to do uh, that I've learned from Taku that I'm inspired to make happen. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And the the funny thing with uni, which is uh, for those who haven't had it, it, it is a delicacy that's it's it's sea urchin row. Um, and, and it is obviously hard to get. You have to get the urchin off of wherever it is and they like to stay where they mm. are typically. And then you got to break them open and, and you can eat it right out of the 
right out of the animal, basically. And, uh, you know, the thing that I think the first time for a lot of people, definitely for me, the first time that I, I kind of came across this as a reference was on Bourdain mm. and uh, No Reservations. Is At least at one point, he said it was his favorite thing to eat because um, it's just something that you very rarely come across right. uh, outside of, yeah, restaurants where you're going to pay three figure for a little spoonful of it. Um, I've only ever had it once and it is, it, you know, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic thing for sure. So I, I could see that being a, a pretty fun. I, I also really, this is something I had always wanted to get into in, in Vancouver was the idea that you could, uh, essentially get a license that would allow you to go in with scuba tanks and grab crab, mm. come right out and throw them in the pot. Oh yeah. And I'm a huge, huge crab lobster fan. Um, like I think a lot of people who give it a chance are, and, uh, it's just something that was always on a list of, uh, mine and one of my main dive buddies, you know, we always talked about doing it and just never kind of put it all together. Right. And got got the fishing license and the rest of it. But uh, I, I love that idea of uh, of yeah going going for a, a free dive and coming up with an urchin or two and eating them all on the side of the beach or whatever. Yeah. That'd be that'd be something else for sure. It's a good life. So what about you? So mine, you know, this is a fun one because Jason's not here, so I can put him uh, on blast a little bit. Uh, I didn't think the reason this didn't come up in last week's episode, which went up Thursday morning, of course was I didn't really think Hodinkee would publish a Talking Watches in the afternoon on a Thursday. It's very outside of the norm. So when it didn't go up Thursday morning, um, or when it, when it didn't look like it was going to go up Thursday morning, I just didn't bother putting it in the in the show last when we recorded a, a week ago, so Tuesday. But it is live, and I saw it in the comments on the last episode, so I know that at least some of you have seen it, but Jason did a Talking Watches that I think is an absolutely must watch. And it's nice because he's not here, so I don't have to feel bad about making him feel embarrassed or, you know, we're, we're not not really attention seekers beyond the types that record their own voices for, uh, you know, several hours a week. <laughs> but Jason did a really lovely job and it was with Jack and recorded remotely, which has all of its own challenges. And Gashani was able to help a bunch with uh, the photography and the, the videography for the piece. And I, I think it's a really good look at a slice of his watches, the watches that really kind of represent his taste in uh, in the dive watch world and I, I highly recommend it it's a pretty easy thing i don't have to give a lot of context it's a talking watches with jason i mean we're at 152 episodes now and jason's been on like 151 of them <laughs> uh, so a lot of you already know him pretty well but it is a nice thing to see him talk and sit and, and also to have him talk with someone who's not me you know I, I think jack came at it at a different level of depth where i would have skipped certain things that i already knew so i it's like you're not always following the same levels of curiosity as other people. And I think the two of them did it, did really well together. I think it came together nicely. Will and the team, they always do a great job with the videos. Uh, so if you manage to somehow miss Jason's talking watches, that's absolutely my final notes. Please go and watch it. So I, I, I'm proud of him. And, and I, I like to see, uh, see his face up in, in some video every now and then. So check it out if you missed it last week. And, and one of his... The- one line that stuck with me said something like it doesn't stay in the collection long unless it gets wet or unless you do something. And I was, yeah. oh man, what a good, what a good way to look at this. You know, I, I agree. You got to watch that. Yeah. It's, it's something that we, uh, we could certainly dig into, um, you know, with, at a time when Jason's actually on the show, but I yeah. do think, yeah, he has, he has kind of different strata of watches and there's there, the bottom is this, it's a high turnover. Right. And then they filter upwards or downwards, however you want to see it in your mind. But yeah, and, and I did I did enjoy that part about this is this is how I really interface with watches is by diving with them. And then they mean something to me, Yeah, uh, which I, I think made sense, uh, certainly and probably to uh, to a lot of those listening. So 
Uh, yeah, cool. So I, I, th- I think that's it. I, you know, I can't thank you enough for filling in for my boy Jason when he was away. This is, uh, this has been great. It's been super nice to catch up with you. I never do these on video, but it's nice to see your face, and and it makes the conversation a little bit more uh, fast in terms of going back and forth when I can see, see, see the uh, the whites of your eyes, as it were. Uh, <laughs> dude, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, no, really, it's it's yeah, truly an honor. Seriously, and and thank you for thinking of me. And I hope I I did, Jason. I did him, did him right by, by filling in for him. So Yeah, well, you don't want to do too good a job. <laughs> it'll be, it'll, I'm, sure, I'm sure at least I'm replaceable. So let's, let's, not, nah, let's, not, let's nah. not keep, let's keep the bar no at an way. operable level here. <laughs> um, other than that, like I said, thank you so much. And uh, as always, thank you to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the show via notes.thegraynado.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton, at J.E. Stacey. And for Cole, it's at Cole underscore Pennington. Uh, and you can follow the show at The Grey NATO. Should you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com and keep sending in those voice memos. We'll do a Q&A in probably the next two to three weeks. And if you're enjoying the show, we would love it if you could subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the free music archive. And we leave you with this quote from Kraft Eric, a rocket scientist who contributed to the American space program. Man's mind and spirit grow with the space in which they are allowed to operate.